Good morning to each of you. Again, I greet you in the name of Jesus, the anchor of our soul. Is that not a song of worship? As we affirm our belief that God is able to keep us, and we affirm that we need Him. This morning, I, I uh, the one phrase stuck out there to me right at the end, my bark so small and frail. And I feel that this morning as I stand before you, we talk about spiritual gifts in Sunday school and, and who volunteers to come take my place this morning here. And yet, I believe that God has, has called me to, to be in this, this place at this time and I want to be faithful to Him and to you. As I meditated on what the Lord would have me share this morning, a number of different things came to my mind over the past week, and I would like to look this morning at repentance. As I think of that, my mind goes to Hebrews 6, and verse 1 says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So why would we talk about it again? We all know about it, right? We all know what repentance is. Most of us. And I trust we've experienced repentance. But there's also a verse, two verses in Second Peter Verses 12 and 13, it says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as in this, excuse me, as long as I am in this tabernacle <clears throat> to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So, yes, we don't focus on any one part of doctrine and teaching at the expense of others. But we can need a constant remembrance, a, an encouragement to consider all the teachings of Christ, all the aspects. And I don't know how many of you were here on Wednesday evening for Brother John Slayball's message, but this was an underlying theme of discipline within the brotherhood or the brotherhood's role in church discipline because that's the goal of discipline is to bring about repentance to those that are erring. How did John the Baptist begin his ministry? What was the phrase that we have recorded? Anyone know? 
Repent. That's the, that was the message that he carried out. Repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. And that's a message he took and preached. And you know, people responded to that. They came and said, what should we do? We are not right with God. We want to be right with God. In Matthew 4.17, we have that Jesus began to preach. I don't think it's the very first thing he did necessarily in his in the chronology of his life and in ministry, but it says as he began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus had the disciples there and he sent them out two by two. And as they went out and preached that men should repent, And further, what did Jesus say is to be preached? In Luke 24, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And we see that in the book of Acts. That seemed to be the message of the apostles. Many times it's, it's referred to in, their, in the preaching there. One reference here in Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. The foundational preaching, foundational message of the preaching of the gospel. While Jesus has come, what do you do with His coming? Scripture says that the law brought the knowledge of sin. And maybe we could say Christ coming brought the knowledge of salvation, but there had to be a response. There has to be a response. I'd like to look at a few things Preliminarily here that repentance is not. Repentance is not just or only confessing sin. Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he disobeyed God. God said, I want you to destroy the Amalekites completely. And when Samuel came, he heard the noise of the cattle lowing and he heard, he gathered that things were not as they should have been. There was disobedience. And finally Saul said, I have sinned. Did he repent? I don't know what all was going through Saul's mind, but if you read further, he says, I have sinned. I want to go yonder and worship that the people won't look down on me. Basically is what he said. I, I want to be held up in the eyes of the people. There was a confession of sin, an acknowledgement of sin, but it didn't go very deep. And this wasn't the first time. And God saw the direction of his heart and he said, it's over. The kingdom is taken away. I need repentance. 
not just confession. We also can think of Judas. He came to the chief priest and said, I have sinned. And he went and hung himself. While confession is an integral part of repentance, it's not the only part. And it's not just a change of action. I can fear being caught and change my action. A thief may quit stealing because he doesn't want to be caught and punished. But that doesn't constitute repentance. We can confess our sin. We can acknowledge our condition. And we can even change our action. But that wasn't the message of repentance. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As the message of mankind, our failure, our position before God, from God's perspective, who I am, what do I do with it? Paul here is, is speaking to the church and he says that he brought, he made them aware of their condition. And in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorrow, sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. I see that humility is a foundational part to repentance. Because as I come, I have to realize who I am before God. And realize that in and of myself, I am nothing. But in myself, I can be antagonistic to God. I can be against God. I have to be humble enough to acknowledge that I have sinned and be sorry. A true, a godly sorrow, a deep sorrow. Not a sorry that I got caught. Not a sorry that someone was offended. But that I have missed the mark. That I have failed God. I have failed to please Him. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 5, there's a verse that says this, And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. He had an opportunity to kill Saul when Saul came into the cave where he was and his men said, do it, do it. And he said, no, I cannot take 
the life of the Lord's anointed. But he took his, his sword and he cut a portion of his robe off. And after he did it, his heart smote him. And I, I think there's a lot there we don't understand in, in what, what that meant. Even that little symbol of, of, of irreverence. And his heart smote him. And I think that's a picture of, of repentance. He realized he should not have done it. And he was sorry for that. Just because there was an opportunity for him to take advantage of his enemy did not make it right. I found this, this quote, and I, I liked the thought, the, the challenge that it left, considering our actions. Never forget that opportunity does not make a wrong right. The ship that was waiting at Tarshish to sail did not make it right for Jonah to take passage. Our actions must not be determined by the opening of the door of circumstance, but by conscience, faith, obedience, and the high sense of Christian honor. As we consider the opportunities to do things, why do we do what we do? But to continue in, in David's life, exactly one book later, 2 Samuel chapter 24, David was disobeying God. God had said, you are not to number the people. And if I recall right, Joab even said when he was commanded to go out and number, he said, no, the, the Lord multiply your, your people above and beyond anything, but don't do this. But David said, I want you to number the people. And in verse 10, it says, And David's heart smote him. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. I see there a sorrow. David was smitten. He was, he was totally contrite. He confessed his sin. But his heart was there in a sorrow, a godly sorrow. There were consequences for that sin. And thousands of people died. But David, I believe, repented. And that was what set him apart from his predecessor. Every time God brought to him to his mind through a prophet. However, the condition of his action, his heart and his actions, what did he say? I've sinned. He repented. And God was able to use him because of that repentance to lift him back up and to set him on his way again. It happened many times in David's life and he was a man of God. And I think that's what made him a man of God. Not his perfection, but his attitude of repentance. But repentance is accompanied by confession. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. It's not just confession, but here again, it's confession and forsaking, a turning away, a renouncing, a sorrow. 
for that sin. And we all know those verses in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We have to agree with God. We have to acknowledge who we are. What we have done. And true repentance, a godly sorrow that is, brings about confession will also bring about change, that forsaking. If you would turn with me to Romans 6. What shall we say then? Romans 6.1 Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many as of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You see, there's an action that takes place at conversion, a baptism, an, a, a lining myself up with the life of Christ, and as he was put to death, my baptism is my affirming that I too have died to myself. And then there is a change of life, a walking in newness. And in verse 6 it says, henceforth we should not serve sin. That henceforth, from now forward, there's a change. If you go on down to verses 20 and through 22, we also see that change expressed again. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. The fruit is the evidence of the repentance. The life that is lived, the holiness. As Paul was before Agrippa, recounting his, his experience of conversion and the Lord's call on his life and the message that Jesus gave to him in Acts 26, Jesus said to him in that vision, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose 
to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from Gentiles unto whom I will send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of God, power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And then Paul goes on and says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. That their life would line up with their repentance. How would you define repentance? Many of us have heard that defined that it's, it's doing a turn. Going completely the opposite way. I'm going this direction, I turn 180 degrees and I go the other way. And I think that's a good picture. So is repentance a one-time event in your life? Is repentance only what happens when one is converted? Is it still repentance if I need to change course by 15 degrees or 45 degrees? You know, there, there's, there's times that we should be hearing the Spirit speak. The term sanctification, a growing in holiness, a more perfect understanding of the will of God. Maybe I need, I need to change my priorities. Maybe I realize that something I've been doing is contrary to the heart of God. Maybe unknowingly, but at some point, as I'm made aware of that by the Holy Spirit, I have to make a decision. And if it's against God, I have to repent. And I believe that we should live in an attitude of repentance. Here is a, an adaption of a quote from Thomas Fuller. He that falls into sin is a man. He that repents of it is a saint. He that boasts of it is a devil. You see, as fallen creatures... It's only natural that we will sin. But as Brother Eli used to say, either you a saint or you ain't. What makes the difference? It's our attitude to sin. I was deeply challenged by 
the message on Wednesday night, and I'd like us to turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. The first three chapters of Revelation seem to be in a little different category than the rest. Maybe a little bit more of a, a current state of affairs rather than all looking forward. But we have here the vision of John. I'd like to read beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we have here the message of the head of the church to these seven churches. And as we go through these Next two chapters, there's a message for each church. The message begins basically to each one with the same phrase. I know thy works. I know thy works. I know what's going on in your hearts, in your, in your church. And out of these seven... Most, he gives some commendation. Two, he really only gives commendation. He encourages them in their struggle and in their, in their quest to be faithful. But in five of these, he calls them to something. I know thy works, but repent. In chapter 2, the first unto the church of Ephesus. In 
Verse 1, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he which holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember... Therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom but he that doeth the will of my Father. But then many will say, we've prophesied in your name. We've even cast out devils. We've done tremendous works in the name of Jesus. And they'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. This church was called to realize that while they were working, they had labored, they had been faithful in some things, many things perhaps. They were patient. They had experienced trials. They had experienced false doctrine that they had called down. But they were not in fellowship with God. They were not doing it out of love. Moving down to verse 14. The church at Pergamos is here in, in focus and he says, But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them with the word of my mouth. They were allowing sin. The sin of fornication, eating things sacrificed to idols, you know, if we go back to go back to Numbers and see what the sin of Israel was, while Balak had wanted Balaam to curse the people, he would not. But then right following that, the children of Israel committed whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And it was a great sin. It was a great plague. And it it had a lot of repercussions. But here, whether how this is all what they were all doing, I don't know. But we do know that it was someone was allowing carnality, rank carnality, patronizing the world's pleasures and priorities. And they were not living a holy life. And Jesus said, I know thy works, repent. A similar message to the church at Thyatira. Thou suffer in, in uh, verse 20, 
Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put none other burden on you. Some of these it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly as he's speaking to the, the angel or the minister, the head elder of this church specifically. And some it seems like he's holding that, that person accountable for most of what's going on. And others we see here that those that are walking in sin will be called out specifically. But we do know that when there is sin, that it affects the body. In chapter 3, verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he which hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Living in deception. Here where this church was had a name, again, that they were alive, but they were really dead. Their life did not measure up to their profession. Perhaps they were trusting in their own works, As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. There's where the life really comes. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you drinking that living water of John 4 that wells up in life? Or do we have a name that we are alive and are dead? And if we do, we have to repent. The last church here in, that I'm going to look at and the last one on this list, and that is in Laodicea. Chapter 315. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. But because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that thy shame, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Verse 
Do I have a dependence on the physical at the expense of the spiritual? These people had a lot of physical blessings, it appears, and they were resting in them. They were satisfied in them. They were focused on these things. And really, in, in their spirit, they were paupers. And we have here following that, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You see... The challenge here is that each one of these messages of repentance comes to a church. To those that have professed the name of Christ, those that have been converted, we believe that they would have repented. And yet, where were they? They were each getting a call to repent. As Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, it is the church that is on the other side of that door in this case. Not only those souls that have never yielded themselves. If Jesus, is Jesus knocking on our church's door? If he would write us a letter, what would it say? Would he call out me? Would he call out a group of you? Or all of us together? Do we need to repent? Are there things in our lives that we need to repent of? How do we measure ourselves? This thought was, was brought forward somewhere recently in, in a conversation or a class, I forget exactly where, but you know, when we measure someone, when, we me- when I measure myself, I look at my successes. But when I look at somebody else, I judge them by their failures. And I can, I can say, well... I was able to overcome. I was able to refrain from eating those two cookies when I could have had the opportunity. But my wife may say, yes, but you took three helpings of potatoes. You see, I look at what I did and where I had victory, but others see where I failed. How do I measure myself? Do I see myself as God does? While this is addressed to churches, I'd like each one of us to take this individually. Are there things that are in my life that God would call me 
to repent of. A quote from D.L. Moody, which sums up a verse in 2 Timothy, but this puts it succinctly. God doesn't seek for golden vessels and does not ask for silver ones, but He must have clean ones. God, why does God call us to repent? I would just like us to consider very briefly here a few verses in Romans chapter 4. It says, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, knowing not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You see, God wants us to repent because He loves us. It's His goodness and His kindness. And there's a beautiful picture that I I came across in Jeremiah 31. Verse 18 to 20, it says, I have... Surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. So Ephraim, the children of Israel or the, the nation of Israel, saying this, You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented and after I was instructed I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth And then God speaking again says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him and I will surely have mercy on him. God's desire is for his people. God's desire is for us to walk with him. And that's why he calls us to repent. This is something that I have a need to grow in my heart and my, my being attuned to the Holy Spirit, to evaluating my life not by my successes, but by my failures, to let the Holy Spirit speak to me. I have a, a list of questions that I was, I came across, was given, and I have altered a little bit. There's a list of questions here for self-evaluation that I would invite any of you that care to, to take one and to prayerfully consider. How am I doing before God? Am I walking a life of holiness? Or am I letting areas of life go? These questions, while they don't all hold the same weight, and while each one may have 
a different focus that they need to look at. They're questions that I think as disciples of Christ we would all do well to consider. I'll read just a few, just pick a few. It says, am I honest in all my words and actions or do I exaggerate? Have I led a life of self-denial? Am I self-absorbed, self-pitying or self-justifying? Is my heart turned to my children? Do I delight in them? Have I disciplined a child in anger? Etc. And these are questions that it's easy for us to go through life and be busy. But to stop and say, have I really this week endeavored to be a disciple of Christ and walk like Him? What do I need to repent of? Maybe I did have, I am having, I'm living in an attitude of pride, of complaining. What relationships do I need to correct? What do I need to repent of? Because the Lord is calling for us to walk in in fellowship with Him. A name that we are alive and actually be alive. Living those works of first love. And that's my desire for myself and for each of you and for us as a body. Shall we have a song?